Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? Hope you're having a fantastic day. I'm coming at you on a Tuesday. It's Tuesday, May 30th. Uh, we're continuing our series on the life of St. Thomas. We're going, we finally finished last time, kind of his education, and he was getting into commenting on the Summa. And now we're going to make this transition from the early life of St. Thomas that's centered around some of the work that he does with, um, did I say Summa? I meant commentary on the sentences. His work on the commentary on the sentences. Sorry, guys. So yeah, we we just went over the period in his life when he was working on that, finally finished it, you know, all that fun stuff. And then now he's going to actually become a master. And in the master stage, we're going to look at the prime of St. Thomas's life, uh, where he is rebuking heretics, he's writing treatises, he's teaching people, he's performing miracles, he's preaching, he, he's doing a bunch of different stuff. Uh, in this portion of his life. So we went over the uh, the sort of background story of St. Thomas. And then now we're going to actually get into where St. Thomas is already in this stage of his life, um, famous around the church uh, as, as a 31-year-old. So uh, I wanted to begin. There's a fun chapter by William of Toko, the, the biographer, the earliest biographer of St. Thomas, uh, that I wanted to just kind of read out, uh, just because it's so good. Uh, what's what's frequent in this? Uh, what's called the vitae literature, the the literature of the lives, uh, where you have these hagiographic stories of saints. Is as I mentioned before, they are they are meant to be representations of people whom you can follow after, as they follow after Christ. So in a lot of different ways, their the the stories of their lives are going to be ordered uh, in much in the same way that the gospels are ordered. It's it's very cool to see. But what William of Toko does is he goes through all of these um, Old Testament figures and he reads them allegorically as referring to Saint Thomas. <clears throat> and I thought this was just an amazing uh, example of that type of literature. Uh, coming up uh, in this era, and why actually you should be uh, reading this type of literature devotionally. Uh, the Vitae literature has always been uh, recommended by spiritual writers uh, for something to do every single day. So this is chapter 16 uh, in the the life of St. Thomas. Then after I, I go through this, then we can uh, go into a little bit more about St. Thomas, his ascension to the um, to the office of the master. So he says, because it was God's merciful will to send this brilliant luminary to the faithful in the evening of the world, it was fitting that he should have prefigured this event from the beginning of time. Therefore, many figures of this doctor bearing witness to the character that he would possess can be discerned in the Old Testament. Indeed, the fruits of the new law are foretold in the last times by ancient images. And God reveals which of these things pertains to the future by fulfilling in the present age the prophecies of the past. Accordingly, it can be said that this illustrious doctor is prefigured by the patriarch Isaac, the son of Abraham. Like Isaac, Thomas went out to the field to meditate upon the scriptures in the evening of the world, while the church was in her old age. Just as Isaac took Rebekah, so did Thomas merit to take the wisdom of God as his lawful wife. When he had first set eyes upon in the midst of his meditation, as Rebekah let down her pitcher, 
for Abraham's servant, and even for his camels to drink. So did Thomas's bride pour out the waters of divine wisdom for all the faithful with wonderful ease and abundance. So he goes over uh, how St. Thomas is another Jacob, how St. Thomas is another Joseph, um, another Moses, is there anything else? I think he calls him another David as well. Um, he makes this funny comment, actually, when he's talking about how St. Thomas is another Moses. He says, uh, to this day, the faces of some men remain covered as they look upon the face of the holy doctor's understanding. That's St. Thomas's understanding, such that their minds are benighted by ignorance or blind jealousy, and their gaze fails to penetrate his doctrine. Uh, I think he was um, talking about certain um, Franciscans. But yeah, that, that chapter just has is just rich with all of these uh, Old Testament images, whereby um, Reginald almost has this apocalyptic vision uh, for the life of St. Thomas and what it means for the church. It's, it's really um, strange to us, I think. Uh, we, we find it a bit weird, um, but they uh, found it to be pious. So as we already went over uh, in the last episode of this series, St. Thomas was 27 years old, um, and the head of the Dominican order, um, by being basically impelled by St. Albertus Magnus and uh, Cardinal uh, Hugh of St. Chair. I think that's how you pronounce it, Hugh of St. Chair. Um, by being impelled by them, Thomas was able to go to Paris and be a bachelor at Paris. If you remember from our overview of the educational system, bachelors were basically almost like junior scholars because they would teach the, basically they would teach the intro classes. They're kind of like how we would think of as PhD students, I guess they would teach all of the intro classes. Um, they didn't get to do the advanced classes and they would practice by writing or at least lecturing on much of sacred scripture and then much of Peter Lombard's uh, book of sentences. So St. Thomas he was insanely early when he went there at 27 years old and he finished his commentary on the sentences in four years. It's, it's extremely fast. If you ever seen a copy of the commentary on the sentences, it's longer than the Summa, much longer than the Summa. Um, so yeah, St. Thomas did that in four years while he was in his twenties. Yeah. It's just insane. But by the time he finished, he was 31 years old, but there's an issue. Um, at Paris, in order to be a master, he had to be 35. So what are they going to do? St. Thomas is 31. He's finished all his studies. In order to be a master, you got to be 35. Thomas, what he wanted to do is he kind of wanted to just wait it out. He, he felt that he needed more time to study, more time to prepare, because being a master at a university like the University of Paris, or really any university, uh, was a extremely sought after and advanced, I think might be the best word, advanced post. It, it, it isn't something that is just random by any means. It isn't something that's just um, like, yeah, I applied for the job and I got it. No, you have to have basically um, in, in a certain way, approval by the larger uh, church or the wider church, especially the local bishop uh, when it comes to getting this position. It was, it was something which would have been as dignified as something like the, um, the Episcopate in, in some places, uh, actually more dignified, unfortunately. So St. Thomas, he just wanted to, to wait it out. Um, but the 
Dominican order really wanted St. Thomas to be a master at the university. So what the University of Paris did is the University of Paris generally had a very strong anti-mendicant spirit. And if you don't know what the mendicant orders are, they are uh, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans. And uh, so on, they beg, they beg, they're mendicant orders, but they don't like the, the mendicant orders. So they try to block St. Thomas. And actually at this time, very interesting, St. Bonaventure was also becoming a master at the University of Paris. They were made masters at the University of Paris at the same time. It's really cool to, uh, to think about that. But the chancellor of the university uh, decided to step in and the chancellor pushed the order of preachers to put St. Thomas forward for the task of master. So the chancellor of the university steps in, says, no, actually, uh, just put him forward. Uh, we will give you like a, um, a token sort of um, Dominican as, as one of your masters. But uh, St. Thomas, when he heard this, that he was going to be made a master, he absolutely just refused. He refused. He begged them to give him more time to uh, to not allow him to become a master of the university because he thought it was too advanced for him. He thought he was far too weak uh, to become a master. So he, he flatly refused the offer. And this is this is the time where things get interesting. It's, it's very, very interesting because at this time, Pope Alexander IV steps in. So Pope Alexander IV. Uh, tells the University of Paris, because obviously there's a bunch of controversy, tells the University of Paris, Paris to allow St. Thomas to become a master, because the chancellor already said so, but the Pope wanted to put his extra authority behind it. And he publicly commands this. So there's like an encyclical, well, not encyclical, because that means it goes around. There, there's some sort of public letter from Pope Alexander IV uh, about Thomas Aquinas uh, when he's like 31 years old. So it's it's crazy. Even during his lifetime, he was getting papal approbation. Even in an early age, you have cardinals who were talking about him. It's it's really quite impressive how from a very early age, St. Thomas was a shining star of the schools. So uh, St. Thomas, upon recognizing that it was actually the Pope who was saying that he ought to do this, he decided that he would assent out of obedience and of course, he was quite distressed because he didn't think that he could he could cut it as a master of theology. So he decided to go and pray, and he fell into a very deep sleep. So during this deep sleep, uh, St. Dominic uh, comes and appears to St. Thomas. And St. Dominic is like, why are you, why are you freaking out? Uh, just chill, calm down. And St. Thomas, he, he responds, and he's like, I, I don't even know what I want to do for my inaugural lecture. Because uh, when you were made a master, you have what's called your inaugural lecture, uh, which is a very important oration, uh, which really sets the stage, or at least is supposed to set the stage for the rest of your theological career. So St. Thomas, he has no idea whatsoever uh, what he is going to do for his inaugural lecture. And St. Dominic tells him, to do his inaugural lecture on Psalm 103.13. He said, do it on Psalm 103.13. And he preached uh, this lecture, and I'm actually going to finish off this uh, episode by reading the lecture. It's not too long. It's maybe like five minutes. We still have it to this day, the lecture that St. Thomas gave upon the inspiration of St. Dominic. 
you, you, you can see that this really is uh, a, a statement of St. Thomas's own, St. Thomas's self-understanding as a master and his understanding of what it means to be a proper student. And we see that St. Thomas throughout the rest of his life was fulfilling uh, this vocation that he first laid out in his inaugural lecture on Psalm 103.13. And uh, this, this is actually William of, of Toko has to say, and, and I thought it was just fantastic. So he says, now these words did not merely serve as the theme for Thomas's inaugural lecture, but they also assured him of the sufficiency of his studies. In this way, he nourished the entire church with the truths that he received on the Mount of Divine Contemplation, like a field once sown with heavenly seed brought to fruition by the gentle showers of wisdom. Truly, it is manifest to all the Catholic faithful that in places of learning throughout the world, nothing is studied in the fields of philosophy and theology that has not been drawn from his writings. This is during like 50 years after the death of St. Thomas. It's actually kind of insane how how quickly his uh, cultus um, spread. While many other masters took pains to imitate his style of writing in their volumes, as if they had laid hold of the key of knowledge from his books, they nonetheless entered into the secret cellars of divine wisdom by establishing their studies upon Thomas as their foundation. It is by an astonishing design of providence, too that nearly every writer who chooses to depart from Thomas's doctrine is found to err in faith or morals. In this way, both kinds of men gave witness to Thomas, his followers by their commendation and his detractors by their departure from the truth. Just fantastic last paragraph. And this in seed form contains the teaching of the magisterium. Oh, man, it must be 600 years after William of Toko was writing uh, in, in such encyclicals as Studiorum Duchum. Uh, this contains uh, exactly what the magisterium has taught about the authority of St. Thomas going all the way back to uh, the time of John the 22nd and in its fountainhead of, in William of Toko, whose biography became the most influential. So before I finish up, I just wanted to quickly read uh, that uh lecture by St. Thomas. So this is uh, his inaugural lecture. It's Psalm, uh, it's on Psalm 103.13, watering the mountains from your upper rooms, the earth shall be filled with the fruit of your works. Oh, I hadn't shared my screen. Sorry, I need to share my screen. Boomer moment. Okay, this is Aquinas.cc if you've never heard of it. So, the King and Lord of the heavens instituted this law from eternity, that the gifts of his providence would come to lower th things through mediators. Hence, Dionysius says in On the Ecclesiastical Hierarchy, the most sacred divine law is such that by first things, the middle things should be led to his most divine light. This law is found not only in spiritual things, but also in bodily things. Hence, Augustine says in On the Trinity, Therefore, in the way that the most base and lowly are ruled by more suitable and powerful in rank, so also are all bodies ruled by the rational spirit of life. And so in this psalm, the Lord proposed a law observed for imparting spiritual wisdom under metaphors of bodily things, watering the mountains. We even see by our senses that rain flows from the highest clouds by which the mountains and rivers are watered 
and send themselves on by which the nourished earth becomes fruitful. In the same way, from the heights of divine wisdom, the minds of teachers, signified by the mountains, are watered, by whose ministry the light of divine wisdom comes to the minds of those who hear them. Therefore, this passage provides four items that should be considered, namely, first, the heights of his spiritual teaching, second, the dignity of its teachers, third, the condition of those who listen, fourth, the order of communication, first, the heights of sacred doctrine. The heights are also are shown from the words, from thy upper rooms. The gloss reads, from high hidden chambers. In fact, sacred doctrine has its height from three things. First, from its origin, for this is the wisdom described as being from the heights. The word of God on high is the foundation of wisdom, is the fountain of wisdom. Second, from the subtlety of its contents, I dwelt in the highest places. Now, there are some heights of divine wisdom to which all come, although imperfectly, be placed because the knowledge of the existence of God is naturally placed in everyone, as Damascene says. And in the same way, it is said in Job, all men see him, everyone beholdeth afar off. Truly, other things are higher, to which only the talent of the wise reaches, whose reasoning is great enough to lead to it. Hence, that which is known of God is manifest in them. Others are so high that they transcend all human reason. And these are spoken of in Job. Wisdom is hidden from the eyes of all the living. And in the psalm, he puts on darkness as his covert. But holy teachers were taught by the Holy Spirit, who searches even the deep things of God and handed it on in the text of sacred scripture. And these are the highest in which this wisdom is said to live. Third, from the sublimity of its end, because it has the highest of ends, namely eternal life. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And seek the things that are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, Mind the things that are above, not the things which are upon the earth. The dignity of its teachers. On account of the height of this doctrine, dignity is required of its teachers. Hence they are signified by the mountains, when it is said, watering the mountains. And this on account of three things, namely, first, on account of the height of the mountains, because they are raised about the earth and neighbor the sky. Hence, the holy teachers despise earthly things and desire only heavenly things, but our conversation is in heaven. Hence, about the teacher of teachers, namely Christ, it is said, it shall be lifted, lifted up the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Second, on account of their brilliance. First, because the mountains are lit by rays, and similarly, the minds of the holy teachers are the first recipients of brilliance. For the sacred teachers are illuminated like mountains by the first rays of divine wisdom. You enlighten wonderfully from the everlasting hills. All the foolish in heart were troubled, that is, by teachers who are participating in eternity, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Third, on account of the fortification of the mountains, because by mountains a country is defended from enemies, and in this way the teachers of the church must defend the faith against errors. The sons of Israel do not trust in spear or arrow, but the mountains defend them. For that reason, one is blamed. You have not gone up to face the enemy, nor have you set up a wall for the house of Israel to stand in battle in the day of the Lord. Therefore, all teachers of sacred scripture should be lifted up by the eminence of their lives so that they may fit to preach efficiently, effectively, because as St. Gregory says in his pastoral care, 
he whose life is despised, his preaching is likewise necessarily despised. And the words of the wise are as goads, and as nails deeply fastened in. For the heart cannot be goaded or fastened in fear of God, if it is not focused on elevation of life. They should be illuminated, so that they may teach well by reading. To me, the least of all sinners, is given this grace, to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to enlighten all men, that they may see what is the dispensation of the mystery, which hath been hidden from eternity in God. They should be armed so that they may refute errors by argument. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to resist and gainsay. And of these three offices, namely to preach, to teach, and to argue, it is said that he may be able to exhort by way of preaching and sound doctrine, by way of teaching, and to convince the gainsayers by way of argument. The conditions of those who listen. Third, the conditions of those who listen who are shown under the likeness of earth. Hence it says, the earth shall be filled. And this because the earth is lowest, the heavens above and the earth beneath. Likewise, it is stable and firm, but the earth stands forever. Again, is fruitful. Let the earth bring forth the green herb, and such as many may seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind. Similarly, they must be low like the earth in humility. Where humility is, there is also wisdom. Again, firm with a sense of rectitude, and henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro. Again, fruitful, so that the words of wisdom they receive may bear fruit in them. But that which fell on the good grounds are they who, in a good and perfect heart, hearing the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit in patience. Therefore, humility is required of them with regard to the teaching that comes from hearing. If you will incline your ear, you will receive instruction, and if you love to hear, you'll be wise. Again, rectitude of the senses with regard to judgment of what is heard. Does not, uh, does not the ear discern words? Job 12.11. But fruitfulness with regard to discovery, by which from only a little heard the good listener reports much. Given occasion to a wise man, and wisdom will be added to him. The order of its generation. The order of its generation is mentioned here according to three things, namely according to the order of communication and according to the quantity and quality of the gift received. First, according to the order of communicating, because not everything that is contained in divine wisdom can be grasped by the mind of teachers. Hence, it does not say flowing from the higher mountains, but watering from your upper rooms. Behold, these things are said in part. And similarly, not everything that the teacher understands is passed on to the listener. He heard secret words, which it was not granted to man to utter. Hence, it does not say, giving to the earth the fruit of the mountains, but the earth shall be filled with the fruit of the mountains. And this is what Gregory says to explain the passage of Job. He binds up the waters in his clouds so that they break not out and fall down together. The teacher should not preach to the simple of all that he knows, because he himself cannot know how many divine mysteries there are. Secondly, the order according to the way in which it is possessed is mentioned, because God has wisdom naturally, hence his heights are said to be natural to him. With him is wisdom and strength. He hath counsel and understanding. But teachers share greatly in his knowledge, hence they are said to be watered from on high. I will water my garden of plants, and I will water abundantly the fruits of my meadow. But listeners participate in it sufficiently, 
and this is signified by the nourishment of the earth. I shall be satisfied when your glory shall appear. Third, according to the power of the communicating, because God communicates wisdom by his own power. Hence, he is said to water the mountains by himself. But teachers do not communicate wisdom unless through ministry. Hence, the fruit of the mountains are not theirs, but are attributed to divine works. The fruit, it says, of your works. What then is Paul? And below, the minister of him whom you have believed, but who is worthy of this? For God requires, first, innocent ministers. He that walks in the unstained way, he will serve me. Second, those with understanding. A wise servant is acceptable to the king. Third, those with zeal. You who make your angels spirits and your ministers a flaming fire. Fourth, those who are obedient. Your ministers of his that do his will. And even though no one by himself of himself is sufficient for such ministry, he can hope to have sufficiency from God. Not that we are sufficient to think anything of ourselves as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. But he should ask God, if any of you want wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men abundantly and does not upbraid, and it will be given him. Let us pray that Christ may grant it to us. Amen. So that is uh, his entire, uh, what was that like? maybe 10, uh, probably less than 10 minutes. But yeah, that was entire uh, inaugural lecture right there that he received at the inspiration of St. Dominic. Very, very cool stuff that we can see a lot of this stuff. Uh, still to this day, uh, we can read it and listen to what St. Thomas said and the way in which he viewed his own vocation as a theological master. So uh, that's all I have for you. Uh, if you enjoy this, um, share the series subscribe, like, do all that fun stuff. Thank you and God bless.